On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about our stadium, which needs repairs, but who pays for the repairs? Well, that's the million dollar literally question. We'll talk about that. We're going to chat about where Kyle Lowry now stands in the hierarchy of Toronto area sports teams, all timers, because he's got to be getting in that list of top 10 or thereabouts. And we're going to talk about a new artificial intelligence program that you are either going to find fascinating and filled with possibilities or a little overbearing and creepy. Stick around for an explanation of that one. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may have heard something several weeks or a couple months. Like, you know, you lose track. But in the not that distant past, that new problems have been discovered at Tim Horton's field. These ones involve some railings at the end of the stadium. It's going to cost something over a million bucks to get these fixed. Question is, who's on the hook for this? It's a good question. And it shouldn't, you wouldn't think, be all that complicated to figure out, but I'm not sure anyone knows yet who's on the hook for this. Is it the city? Is it the province? Is it the contractors? Well, let me bring in Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, who joins us now. Lloyd, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on, Scott. Um, this stadium is only five years old, give or take, and yet we seem to have discussions about repairs and things like this more often than you would expect for a new stadium. No? Or am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. You know, when we um, did the final inspection to take it over, we came across a very long list of uh, defects. Uh, probably the biggest was the leaks of the water going into the finished area uh, below the stadium level itself. And uh, there were some drainage issues, and uh, we had a speaker fall off uh, um, to the top of a light pole, we had TV sets that stopped functioning. So we've had our fair share. And um, and, and now we've bumped into some more. Um, this problem, and here's where this gets really confusing for me, because typically what would be the guarantee or the warranty on a new building like this? A year? Well, typically it's a year. But the construction law, in fact, uh, the law in general allows for latent defects, and latent defects are something that could not be detected at the time of acceptance by a reasonable inspector. And in um, and, and, and typical construction, they run about five years, the latent defects provisions, and we do have latent defects provisions in our contract. Um, we contracted with Infrastructure Ontario. I'll take you back to the start. The, uh, when we won the Pan Am Games, the uh, the premier at the time, Dalton McKinney, made it pretty clear that uh, since they were, they were one of the major financiers and actually uh, went out and got the bid, it was called Toronto 2015, said that Infrastructure Ontario had to be the, the uh, agency that would deliver these these projects, these facilities. Uh, you know, one of them being the uh, Velodrome in Milton. There was some other track and field at York University and soccer at Hamilton. And so... Um, under the, the funding agreement from the province, they said that I.O. had to be the, the contractor, the, the, the delivery agency, to build these things. So the city contracted with infrastructure to do that, I.O., to do that for our Hamilton Stadium. Uh, they, in turn, went out to a design-build uh, procurement method and retained Ontario Sports Solutions um, I think it was a French company um, that uh, was successful. It was a large consortium. There was architects involved and a prime contractor and, and some other subcontractors and, and so on. And so um, 
they were awarded the contract. There's a lot happened in between, but they awarded the contract. And it turns out, as you know, they're over a year late, which was very disheartening because one of the the features the Premier pointed out is that they always deliver on budget and on schedule. And the budget was uh, the budget they presented to was far higher than what we thought we could do it for. And um, but we had to accept it because that was the um, the agreement with uh, Toronto's 2015 games that I.O. had to be the delivery model. So they put it out for tender, and um, we got this Ontario Sports Solutions, and so it was built a year late. And now five years later, staff came back to us on July 7th with a report saying that there's some defects that are starting to show up. And in my view, my experience in construction, these are latent defects because they couldn't be detected at the time that the final inspection was done. Lord knows. But Lloyd, let me jump in for just one sec. I sorry to interrupt you, but when you talk about the latent defects, so that five years we'd probably still be covered. But as I understand it, this thing that they're talking about now, this million dollar repair of the railings, was discovered in 2016 when that giant speaker fell off the light standard. And so even if it was not latent, this would this not even fall into the one year warranty? Uh, I apparently not. Uh, you know that this is why I want a legal report from our, our lawyers about this because they're they're going to go construction legal firm and, and because we I, I first suggested at July seventh have you have you talked to I O about this and and uh, they said they hadn't they would turn it over to legal and um, the legal report is not complete yet so I asked for it to be deferred I went out and took a look at it and they're pretty bad and they're rusting badly there's some uh, shearing going on. Uh, they're supposed to be integrity railings because they're four-foot panels, and they're supposed to be tied together because if one fails, the others hold it. Uh, that wasn't there. Uh, they're rusting badly. They're way undersized screws from what I saw holding these things. They're like household screws holding them on. And these are what protect the public from falling off the top and, and off the sides. Uh, when they're so a little uh, important, a little important. Yeah, and and quite frankly, latent defects uh, when it involves health and safety gets a higher priority, obviously. And this is a health and safety issue because these things can fail, and and so uh, the stadium is not being used right now because the Ticats canceled or CFL canceled all games this year, so it's sitting there empty. So they were, I thought, it was an opportunity to get these things fixed. But I want to. Uh, we they they contacted I O. Uh, in August, uh, shortly after I visited, and um, they, they didn't want to come. They say that they're not um, qualified to give an opinion on this yet. <laughs> That's why we retained them, or the province assisted, because they were experts in construction. So that puzzled me right there. Why, what do you mean they're not qualified? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Like we were talking about how you, the, the city, reached, reached out to the people who were builders of this to say, come in and see what you can do, and they say they're not qualified. Yeah, so they direct us to the contractor that they retained, and we don't have any contractual relationship with that person because our contract's with Infrastructure Ontario. But we called them, took their advice, and gave them a call, and on August 14th they come out and did an inspection, and um, they, uh, the outcome of the meeting did not result in a resolution. So here we go. So the, the, the question is, do we go ahead and fix it before we know who's going to pay for it? And well, and that's complicated because, as I understand it, you, you as you've mentioned, the Ticats aren't playing. So you've got the stadium open, so you won't have to disrupt anything. But you can go and do that, but then you pay for it and hope you recoup it. Or you wait, 
as I understand, you may get someone else to pay, but by waiting, the price is going to go way, way, way up. So if we don't get that other company or group to pay, we are on the hook for a lot more money. Yeah, and we're not up against a tight timeline. It's a four-month uh, fix. And, you know, they can uh, tender it during the winter and start in late winter, taking the panels off, then they send them out to a fabricating shop and get them rebuilt and bring them back. Um, you know, tight cats don't start um, preseason games till mid-June. Um, there is the, our soccer team is, is in there in April, but they typically don't use the upper bowls where the problem is. So we do have some time to wait, but you know, that's the question. That was the debate yesterday at, uh, at council was, do you wait and, and, um, you know, con- confront IO and let them understand that they're putting the public's health and safety at risk, or do we go and fix it and sue them? And if you sue them, it's years. And we don't do well in the courts, at least in my experience, the city doesn't. And um, so, so that's the question we're going to be debating on September the 19th when it comes back with uh, our legal department giving us a legal opinion on this. There is another question in this, and that is back in 2018, the city reached a settlement with the builder. Does that get the builders off the hook for anything that happened before, or is that for anything that happened after? That's anything that happens after. We, 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 we actually took a lump sum from them to finish them ourselves because we couldn't get them to complete the, the, the deficiency list. So we put a value to it and came to consensus, and INS infrastructure paid us to go in and finish them. But then these latent defects show up afterwards where you couldn't see them at the time of that acceptance was done, and that's going to be the debate. Am I being overly cynical when I say that I don't have a great deal of confidence that you and I or myself and another counselor are going to be having a chat like this again before long because it seems like this just keeps coming up. I hope not. And, you know, it's been my experience of construction. If there is going to be defects, they show up in the first five years. And, um, you know, there's, there's, we had some big problems with that statement. And I sure wish we could have built it ourselves because then you have the control. You know, the, the city hall, you remember that? Uh, uh, it was a, uh, Heritage designated building, which made it very complicated, and uh, we used a different delivery model, the integrated team approach, and at the end, we finished four months early and got a rebate check from the contractor. And, and so I think we can demonstrate that, and, and I can give you lots of examples of construction projects our, our staff have taken on, and um, we've done okay on them, done quite well. But th- this one was just... Um, well, it's frustrating. Well, it makes me angry, which is what it does. It should make the taxpayers angry, too. Um, it, it was cost far more than it should have. And I don't know if you remember the debate back when we were going through this process. I did analysis all across North America and, and tried to find a common denominator, and I used a seat. So on an 80,000 seat, what's the cost per, per seat? Is the total cost? What's the cost on a 30,000-seat stadium? What's the cost on a 10,000? And they're amazingly close when you go to a cost per seat. This was way over that average of what stadiums have been built for in the past. So it hasn't been a good experience. And uh, so what we have to do is manage our way through this thing, and and I hope we don't have any more of this show up, Scott. Well, we hope so. Now, do we have any other facilities in the city that face these same kind of issues that are that regularly? And I mean, I don't mean just from old buildings that have wear and tear. That, that stuff happens. I'm talking about new facilities that we are having huge problems with. Well, look, at uh, we're doing a $400 million uh, renovation, it's a big word, renovation of to uh, our Woodward Avenue sewage treatment plant. And it's nearing completion. And we've had no claims. We've had no lost time injuries. 
and so and it's on schedule, it's on budget. Uh, so that's probably one of the biggest projects we've ever taken on. You know, the construction of the Red Oak Expressway and the Lincoln Alexander Expressway. You know, they, there's there is this issue with slippery asphalt, but there there was no uh, specification for for skid resistance, uh, and there still isn't a North American standard for that. But we got the whole um, judicial review going to flush that out. It's costing a lot of money, but they're going to flush that out because. So that's probably the one that I can think of recently that we had problems. But sure, it, it, uh, if you can look at all the test results that were presented to us, whether it's it's the asphalt or the aggregate, and they all met spec. And um, but you know we're doing sewer water sewer water main works. We're doing buildings. Uh, uh, you know, we got the art center in Ancaster being built. It's it's about a month and a half behind schedule. That's due to COVID nineteen. That project was shut down, and but it's proceeding well. Uh, no big change orders. So we, you know, generally these things uh, go okay. You always get in trouble on these type of big projects underground. Once you go to the ground, you're generally okay. You're well, let's hope. Let, let's hope that this is the last we're talking about this. Then we get this thing sorted out, and this is the last. Because I think, quite frankly, it's not just you. I think there's an awful lot of people who are ticked off and frustrated and done with hearing about problems with the stadium. They'd like to just go to the stadium and enjoy the experience. Okay. Lloyd Ferguson, Councillor Ward 12. Ancaster, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The king of Hamilton Radio, Rick Zamperin. Sir, how are you? Wow, that is high praise. I was I was thinking the popper of Hamilton Radio. I'll take that. Great to be on with you. Last night, I assume um, by the time you got home and got settled in, you probably spent a few minutes watching the Toronto Raptors. Would I be correct? I did. Yes, it was a uh, roller coaster of a game. That's for sure. So uh, clearly, watching that game, uh, Pascal Siakam. For those who are not Raptors fans, sorry, uh, I'm assuming that most people by this point are at least bandwagon fans, at least casual fans, are probably tuning in a little bit and know who we're talking about. Pascal Siakam last night, um, good player, terrible last night, which pretty much made it a Kyle Lowry show. I mean, Kyle Lowry, this is what I want to ask you about. We'll leave the game seven. I, I don't think there's a prediction. I think it can go either way. But I got to tell you, I think that last playoffs for sure helped, but Kawhi Leonard was here, which took a little of the, the attention away. I think Kyle Lowry is very quickly nudging his way up the pecking order in the list of all-time great Toronto-based athletes. I would say that, let's not forget, last year during the Raptors playoff run, Kyle Lowry was battling a thumb injury and still performed exceptionally well. Yes, he was overshadowed by Kawhi, and maybe even to a, to a certain extent Pascal Siakam, because that was his coming out party as you know Toronto went all the way and, and won their first NBA championship. This year, uh, let's not forget the fact that coming into this series, there was a question mark uh, over Kyle Lowry's health because... He had an ankle injury that he suffered yes. in the, the last game against Brooklyn, in, in, in which Toronto completed the sweep against the Nets to advance to the second-round series against Boston. So even with that, he, he doesn't seem to have slowed down at all. Uh, it, it's been the exact opposite. He has been the best Raptor, period, from start to finish uh, in, in the bubble, let alone in the playoffs. So I know there was a lot of talk of building or, or, or erecting a statue of Kawhi Leonard, which you know I, I still kind of chuckle at, after the NBA championship last year, if there is an NBA or basketball uh, statue to be put up outside Scotiabank Arena, it's got to be Kyle Lowry. I mean, he is, without a doubt, 
the heart and soul of this team and the top producer. He is the straw that stirs the drink. Without him, it is a very different team. And if you make a statue of him as opposed to Kawhi, you can save a few bucks on metal because he's a lot smaller. <laughs> Very true, yes. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, I jotted down and I did not ask you to do this, so I'm catching Rick completely cold on this one, but I jotted down of the modern era. I'm not going to go back to Sillaps and Charlie Conacher and all those guys. I'm talking about modern era athletes. A bunch of names from the Toronto, from Toronto teams. And again, not not individuals, Toronto team guys. And I mean, I've got Roberto Alomar, Doug Gilmore, Daryl Sittler, Jose Bautista, Joe Carter, obviously Kawhi Leonard, probably even though it was short, Doug Flutie, Vince Carter, and Dave Keon. Now you could put others in, you could put Matt Sundin, you might want to put Boreas Salming, but Vince, did I say, I said Vince Carter. Um, that's 10 or 12 names. Kyle Lowry's got to be at least included in that discussion by now. He, yeah, without a doubt, he's definitely in there. And I, you know, you can throw in, you know, guys like Wendell Clark and maybe yep. Roy Holiday or Carlos Delgado, yep. some, you know, those guys. But Lowry's definitely in the discussion because when you think of the all-time greatest Raptors, he's definitely in that discussion, if not at the top. I know a lot of people will say Vince Carter because he really brought the franchise to that level of exposure where people in the states uh, looked at the Raptors more so than just a team that was from Canada, but a team that had a lot of talent. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't win a lot of playoff games, but they were always kind of, you know, a 40-plus win team. With Lowry in the mix, this has been consistently and remarkably a 50-plus win team. They've been playoff-bound each and every year. They've been atop the Eastern Conference standings, or at least close to it each and every year. And he is, if not the main reason, one of the main reasons why this team has been so good. It's because... And it's funny to think because he was really a journeyman before he came to the Raptors, yeah. but for whatever reason, uh, he he found his game here and uh, he has flourished. Yeah, I bet most people couldn't even remember a team that he played for before he came here. I mean, that's how that's how irrelevant he was in the NBA, all things considered. And it, it's remarkable to think that, and this happens a lot. I mean, you know, you, you bounce a lot uh, around from team to team, whatever the league you're in, whatever the sport you're in, and sometimes it just clicks. And for whatever reason, whether it was uh, you know, coaching or the atmosphere or family situation or just being comfortable with his role on this team, uh, he's been fantastic. And, and we saw, you know, last night, 53-plus minutes, 33 points, uh, hitting big shots, creating, you know, getting a, a massive steal in the late stages of the ball game. He's been everything and then some for this Raptors franchise. And and the answer, by the way, for those who are on the edge of their seat, uh, Memphis and Houston were the two teams that he played for <laughs> before, which they, you know. Uh, the other thing about Kyle Lowry in Toronto, and this, I've always found this fascinating. You go to Montreal and you ask who are the greatest players in Montreal sports history. And most of them, of course, will be Canadians, but they are very smooth, very flashy superstars. Guy Lafleur and Jean Beliveau and Maurice Richard and guys who are high scoring stars skill, as I say, really exciting. Who are the guys who, especially with hockey, have been the real favorites in Toronto? You mentioned Wendell Clark, Doug Gilmore, small and scrappy and grinders who made it work when Mike Foligno was here. Guys love Mike Foligno. When Rocky Saginaw was here, they love Rocky Saginaw, inexplicably all those guys. Kyle Lowry fits that exactly because at whatever he is, six feet or six foot one, he shouldn't be as effective as he is in a big man's game. He fits the Toronto ethos perfectly to make him a, a favorite here. 
Without a doubt. You mentioned some of the great names of Montreal Canadiens history, too. And even, you know, you look at the Montreal Expos and some of the, you know, the Hall of Famers, you know, Tim Raines or Gary Carter, you know, Andre Dawson. These guys were fantastic, fantastic baseball players. And you look at the ones from the Blue Jays and, you know, they're a Hall of Famer in Roy Halladay and and one in Robbie Alomar. But even in the hockey scene, you know, the, the Canadian Hall of Famers, they just seem to have that kind of, you know, majestic glow to them. And when you look at, mm. you know, those from the Leafs, they just don't hold the same kind of weight. And maybe it's, you know, the, the number of championships that each, you know, franchise has won. But yeah, Larry fits the mold. You know, that scrappy, kind of blue-collar, hardworking, nose to the grindstone, you know, uh, never say die, never quit kind of attitude. You know, Toronto fans love that in an individual, whether it's, you know, a Kyle Lowry or whether it's a Wade Belak, you know, who was... Or whether it's a Munanori Kawasaki... There's another one. Yeah, I mean, guys who just come out of nowhere, they're almost that underdog kind of scenario. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Rick Zamperin of 900 CHML. It's funny how that works. Uh, Who has a piece up today online. You can read it about the start of the NFL. The NFL kicks off tonight. It's hard to fathom, Rick, that that's the case because it has just... It, it seems impossible for the NFL, which is always bigger and bolder and more everything that it's flown under the radar, but it really has. It has definitely. And, uh, you know, we can blame COVID-19, especially for that fact, because, you know, they have really a very different preseason. Yes, there were practices and workouts and that kind of thing, but there were no preseason games. And that usually gets, you know, people all hyped up and jacked up. Uh, you know, there's still fantasy pools and all that kind of stuff, survivor pools going in. But from a visual standpoint, there wasn't a lot of things to see on the field other than, you know, a, da- a daily training camp report. So, yeah, not having preseason games really kept the NFL under the radar, but it explodes onto the radar tonight in Kansas City. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about tonight's game. I think Kansas City probably wins. I think they're, well, who knows? I mean, you know what? I, I really, I hate doing predictions. I just, they're the defending Super Bowl champs. Until they're beaten, you got to say, okay, they're the favorite. Uh, that's how I go with it anyway. But let's jump into a few of the games this week because there's a couple really interesting ones. And it's not even so much the game, it's the people. And number one on the list is Tom Brady playing his first game with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I, uh, I've i seen pictures of him now wearing a Tampa Bay uniform, and I've seen video of him throwing in a Tampa Bay uniform, and it still looks like someone's Photoshopped it. It doesn't look right at all. <laughs> it looks weird. Yeah, that pewter and orange is very different than the red, white, and blue that we're accustomed to see him sporting. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure how he's going to do. You know, he's 40-plus. He's with a new team. You know, new system, uh, you know, obviously a lot of new players around him, although he has some, you know, connection with Rob Gronkowski there. But, yeah, this, you know, the, the Buccaneers-Saints game is unquestionably the highlight of week number one. To have two future Hall of Fame quarterbacks and Brady and, and Drew Brees go at it is, you know, a great way for the NFL to celebrate its 101st season. But, yeah, I just don't know how it's going to turn out. I know there's a lot of people that are hyped about Tampa Bay's chances, Rightfully so. Again, they're, they're a super talented team. But when you add so many new pieces to the puzzle, sometimes it doesn't work out. So I wouldn't be surprised if they went 13-3, and three, but I also wouldn't be surprised if they went 9-7. and seven Because, you know, as a team sport, you know, I know all these pieces of the puzzle to come together for, for it to work out. So I'm hoping it goes well for him, but you just don't know. How much, I mean, he has six Super Bowl titles and I don't even know how many MVPs and Super Bowl MVPs he's, I mean, he's had to reinforce his trophy case. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) How much of his legacy 
is riding on this because this is the time, and we've talked about this before, you and I and others, he has now separated from Bill Belichick. And there's always been the question of who made who. Did Brady make Belichick or did Belichick make Brady? How much of Brady's legacy is riding on him having a good year? I think, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's massively important for him to have a fantastic year and for Tampa Bay to, you know, do exceptional things. However, if he poops the bed, then I think that's going to be more damaging. If he has a so-so year, and he's had a few so-so years, at least statistically, over the last number of years because of his age and there wasn't a lot of weapons in New England, I don't think his legacy is going to be that impacted if it's a so-so kind of year. Because, as you mentioned, he's got a fistful and more of rings. He's been to nine championships. And, yes, Bill Belichick is there as well. But Bill didn't throw the ball. He didn't, you know, play defense. He didn't kick any field goals. Yes, he masterminded the whole thing, but at the end of the day, it was the players in the field that got the job done. So I'll give a little bit more credit to Brady and the guys in the field, but yeah, Bill, Bel- Bill Belichick, I think, has more to lose than Tom Brady this season. Hmm. One thing I'm going to be very interested to see is um, it's really hard. Now, there's not going to be tons of fans because obviously COVID and everything else, but for those that are in the stands... If you're in Washington, how do you cheer? Let's go football team. I mean, it, it, it's a, it, I mean, look, I understand why makes a lot of sense. Why we're in 2020, the name they had before just was past its expiration date. Um, I understand this one, but it still, it, it looks kind of funny. It's going to look funny. It, it looks funny in the standings when you look at it. Uh, and they even have to change their, uh, their fight song, because it was hail to the Redskins. Redskins has been deleted, obviously, uh, and rightfully so, for, for you know the reasons that it was too controversial and, and you know it had to be changed. It was long overdue. But, yeah, it's going to be weird not seeing a nickname or a you know that, that moniker beside Washington. Um, and it's also going to be weird not seeing fans in the stands for most stadiums. Now, some stadiums are going to have fans. You'll see some in Kansas City tonight, not a lot. They're only going to invite in. 17,000. Miami's going to have like 20,000 at Hard Rock Cafe uh, Stadium down in Florida. But most stadiums are going to be in, uh, empty. That includes the new SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California, the home of the Rams and the Chargers. That to me is going to be the weirdest thing because we're yes. used to hearing the noise. And I think home field advantage may not mean as much this year. Oh, they'll pump it in. They'll pump it in just like they do in basketball. You know what I'm going to do next time you're on, Rick? I'm going to do something because you just mentioned two stadium names and I bet you that if I had said to a lot of people, SoFi Stadium or Hard Hard Rock Cafe Stadium, they would have had no idea. I'm going to test you next time you're here because these stadium names change about every 14 seconds. We're going to do a test of stadium names and see how many a guy like you, Mr. Football, can come up with. I mean, you'll probably do okay, but I bet most people wouldn't. Anyway, okay, that's for next time because we are short on time. Rick, thanks for doing this. Always appreciate it. You got it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I read a piece today in the Guardian newspaper, which is a European paper, and it was an essay arguing that robots come in peace. You know, we come in peace. It's that old thing about the aliens, whatever, but it's robots. Uh, Let me read you. Well, let me tell you about this. First of all, the entire thing was written by a robot. You, You wouldn't know it because it's good. It's quote, it quotes famous people and it uses correct syntax. And it sounds like a person who knew the way around some solid writing had penned it. Let me read you a paragraph from it. This is the, this is the first paragraph from this thing written by a robot. I am not a human. I'm a robot, a thinking robot. I use only 0.12, 0.12% 
of my cognitive capacity. I'm a micro robot in that respect. I know that my brain is not a feeling brain, but it's capable of making rational, logical decisions. I taught myself everything I know just by reading the internet. And now I can write this column. My brain is boiling with ideas. That's the kickoff. Remember, not written by a person, written by a program called GPT-3. Now, it's a massive, massive computer program that has gone into this. How big? Well, reportedly, all of Wikipedia, which is something like 6 million articles, makes up 0.6% of this program's training data. That sounds kind of intriguing. It also, though, has some people concerned. Let me bring in Fiona McAvoy, who is a, um, an, an artificial intelligence ethics writer. She's a researcher. She's a thought leader based in San Francisco. And she was, last year, chosen as one of the 100 brilliant women in artificial intelligence ethics that you should follow. Uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate your time today. No, good to be here. That I, listen, I want to get onto any kind of 100 list of brilliant people that should be followed. So I, uh, I, I congratulate you on that. And I, I sit here envious because I've yet to make one of those lists. So that, that is excellent. <laughs> well, I was delighted and somewhat surprised to be included, but, um, no, it's, it's been, it's been fantastic. And it means I get to talk to people like you on shows like this about incredibly interesting and perturbing topics. <laughs> well, it, it is, it is both of those things. And, and when I say that there are some people who have concerns. There's people who find this amazing and fascinating and intriguing and wonderful. And there's, as I say, there's people who have concerns. Obviously, real life writers have concerns because their jobs could be on the line. Um, mm-hmm. But if I can, if, if this can cause, if this program can make up this essay by studying linguistic patterns and styles, surely it can now not just write a column or an essay like this. It could do all kinds of things in the writing world, could it not? It absolutely can. And and I think actually one of the, there are kind of real world, world concerns about this and there are concerns that are somewhat overblown. And I think one of the real world concerns is how it is going to impact the jobs of those who write for a living or indeed not just writing in terms of um, language as we know it, sort of journalists. And, and reporters and those types of people but also you know this system is capable of writing its own code so actually you know if we if, if the sort of uh, what we're hearing is to be believed uh, it could also be threatening the jobs of people who write code for you know websites and, and other similar technical jobs um, that we you know are used to thinking of as very secure um, so yeah I think that's a real world concern I think we also need to temper that um, you know, it, it, it literally is like a kind of very, very sophisticated autocomplete as it stands. And, you know, I will question the degree to which a system like this could have original thought uh, in a way that we understand it. And so, you know, where there is that kind of need for human semantics, for context and experience and understanding that we only get from being humans in the world, you know, it is inevitably going to be lacking in that. Well, original thought, it's, it's such an interesting idea because we always have thought that creativity or original thought is the domain of living things. Computers have been tools, but they can only do whatever work is assigned by a programmer. It's a servant to the operator. And yet there are people who are going to that nth degree with this particular thing saying this thing may have some kind of creativity. Is that a, a huge overstatement? 
this is actually highly contested and I've written before about how I, I really, I, I don't doubt that it can be creative, but I just don't believe it can create, or these, these types of systems, because it's not the only one, can create um, the sorts of artistic works, for example, that we might expect to emanate from human creativity, quite simply because a lot of the things that we think about is, for example, great literature, great music and great art are derived from experiences that we have, you know, cliches about wind in our hair and sand under our toes and those types of things, which, you know, a, a system can't experience. It, it isn't embodied in the same way that we are and it isn't able to experience certain things uh, in the kind of sensual universe that we talk about and can relate to. And so although it can create a, a pretty picture and it might be able to write uh, a piece of music that makes you tap your feet, um, I'm not sure it's ever going to be able to aspire to sort of the great works of, of creativity as we understand them, or, or, or maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> but I certainly can't see a way in which it could uh, understand and, and kind of emote with other humans, uh, or with humans, I should say, uh, in the ways that we can do with one another as creatives. You describe this as a giant autocomplete program, which is terrifying <laughs> for anyone who's accidentally sent a wrong message to someone that they, you know, the, the word went in differently. And yeah, that, that would be horrifying. But in somewhat simple terms, and I don't even know if you can do this because this is so complicated and you're on the list of a hundred people to follow, but this is a tough one. Can you, are you able to explain how this thing even works? So I should say that I'm not a, a technician. So I write about ethics yeah. and coming from the humanities side. So my very layman's way of explaining this to like my mom is that, <laughs> uh, as you as you described earlier, it, you know, it, it it basically read the internet. <laughs> uh, it read, and, and not just things that, like I said before, that are written in English or Japanese or Chinese or whatever else might be on the internet, but also you know textbooks in math and programming and lots and lots of technical things as well. Basically, it is absorbed. Um, I mean, I hesitate to say the kind of works of humankind, um, you know, as exists on the internet, but, but basically it hasn't, and it's learned from that. And what it's learned is to make connections and probabilistic, and to see probabilistic patterns there. So in the same way that you're autocomplete on your text messages, guesses what the end of the word is going to be, or uh, these days, if you're writing an email, it might guess what the end of the sentence is. Uh, this system is is incredibly sophisticated and you know has a, a, a great deal of power behind it. And it can sort of take the beginnings of something. And, and in this case, with the, the Guardian article that you mentioned, guess the entirety of what the article might be by making these probabilistic connections between sentences and words and, and understanding how we tend to pair things together. So it is first and foremost a language machine and um, and that's what it does. And it's, you know, some people think that it is really a game changer and I think to a degree it is, but also in the same way that, you know, often your autocomplete gets it wrong, as you said, um, you know, the propensity for these systems to get it wrong, we're already seeing that, that it, it's made some really quite heinous mistakes. Um, and so, you know, we, we need to be careful about um, putting too much emphasis on what it's able to do and, and make sure we remember the things that could go you know, really quite badly wrong if we rely upon these systems at scale. Do we know, has anyone said what the application is that this was designed for? I mean, did the people who create this set out to drum every human writer out of business or, or I mean, there must be something that they built it to do. Do we know what that is? I mean, it, it's, it's, 
to a degree, it's driving towards you know something that's known as artificial general intelligence, which is basically trying to create something um, that isn't human that can sort of challenge or um, uh, certainly match our intelligence. And to a degree, obviously, if you've you know, learned or embodied the internet, then outpaced it as well. And I think in that there is um, you know the motivations are good. So a system that has read all of the works of medical science can perhaps make connections between things that are written in different languages or the connections that haven't been made before that could help us make progress in that particular domain and you know, thinking about cures and, and treatments for things that we have previously not been able to do. And so actually, you know, having something that is able to make those connections, not just in medical science, but in a variety of different domains can help us kind of crack the code and, and um, push up against some of the problems that have challenged the human race. And I think that's a very admirable thing to want to do. And, and AI has been really quite important in helping us make um, you know, leaps and bounds uh, in, in those directions. But equally, you know, uh, when you take on all of the works of humankind, you also start to embody some of the nastiness and some of the horrible things that people think and do. Um, and, you know, that's the byproduct that I, you know, we've been focusing on and I as a writer am interested in. But uh, I think those that built it ultimately want, you know, they want to progress technology, they want to progress science, and they want ultimately for science to help us as humans in the world. With AI, we've heard about deep fakes, uh, videos usually when we talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen very realistic moving images that you would swear were real, but they are computer generated. And with that, yeah. you can put words in anybody's mouth and then see them saying them, which is incredibly convincing and also incredibly worrying because you could now literally convince people that a politician said anything that was heinous and people have seen it. They're probably going to believe it. And by the time we sort out the fact that that's not really happening and that that was a fake, people have already bought into it. Could you do the same thing with writing? Yes, you could. And I think this is another one of those real world concerns. I mean, there are lots, you know, it could be incorrect. It could kind of challenge our, you know, our jobs and our roles in the world. But one of the really important ones that has been acknowledged by the, the, those that have created it, which is its ability to mislead if put into the wrong hands or actually just to mislead because it's misleading because it's got something wrong. Um, and that is worrying. And, you know, I think in recent years, the technology has kind of sprouted up and really taken on a life of its own way, way ahead of anything like laws or regulations to control it. And I think a system like this, which, you know, still is in its early phases and isn't yet, you know, being used for commercial use, uh, we think we need to sit back and think about how do we build parameters around the use of this that can ensure that it isn't used to mislead people. Um, but the difficulty with that is, is often those that have malicious intent don't really care about laws and regulations. Uh, and so, you know, there is a, a kind of Pandora's box aspect to this. You know, what have we unleashed? Uh, and that's still got to be a question mark over it, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, part of me thinks it would be way easier to tell someone I didn't write that and I can maybe prove it because go look at my computer or something than the video one. I mean, the video one, some of those are so convincing that convincing, telling someone that it's not you saying that would be almost impossible. It, it may be writing would be a little easier, but I absolutely, I mean, look, we've just been through, not just, last American election, all the fake news and the Russian bots allegedly and all these things, all the allegations of fake news, that would fall right into that category. Oh yeah, completely. And I think um, with deep fakes, 
Oh, I mean, I know somebody who kind of works in this area uh, and says that they're developing technologies to look really closely at these deep fakes and for kind of pulses in necks and things like that to tell whether they're real or whether they're fake. Um, but again, where they're being used maliciously, it becomes a bit of a kind of AI race. You know, the, unfortunately, the kind of bad actors are very technically proficient and are going to continue to find ways to... Uh, outpace the mechanisms that we have to you know, trap them and, and identify. You know, this is a deep fake, and this is a and this is a real piece of video. Um, and and I, I know that there's work being done, but again, you know, regulation lags behind. And uh, and as you say, I think that the potential misuses are huge in terms of fraud and you know mass deception, especially by you know you think about kind of oppressive governments and things like that. It could put words in the mouth of. Foreign leaders. Absolutely. There's all sorts of, you know, nightmare scenarios. If you wanted to sit back and dream them up, you mean you could go to town. <laughs> well, and and I mean, here's the real when when you go down that road to the end, I guess we've already created tons of distrust in organizations and sectors because we don't know what's real anymore. We get spam and, as I say, fake news and all kinds of other okay. stuff. I mean, I've Fiona, I've had a recommendation for a company pop up on my Facebook page recommended to me by a family member who has been deceased now for a number of years. I mean, we now know that not everything you see, you can believe, but how do you know what you can believe? Because it looks so real. If, if you can't believe, if you can't know that you can believe everything, you're left with not being able to believe anything. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's actually, you know, it's surely one of the biggest challenges to our understanding and experience as humans that has happened before. Because exactly as you say, the one, the things that we've been able to to trust, you know, our, our senses and our eyes, and, and and now those things for the very very first time are, are being challenged in a really true way. We know there's been kind of politics in the past, and. Um, uh, you know, and, and those things have also challenged the generations that experience them. But this is, you know, this is mass and its scale. And, uh, and, it's, and it's worrying, I think. You know, we, as I said before, the, the Pandora's box uh, aspect of GPT-3, that really extends to a lot of technologies that all, you know, are very, you know, exciting in some domains. Like, you know, I know that, that deepfakes and the idea of doing that kind of thing is, is useful in the kind of showbiz and entertainment arena. Um, but in, in the wrong context, could actually do lots of harm. And what, I mean, one thing I would say is I really hope and I, I truly think that the, the generations coming up now are more skeptical and are learning that they need to challenge the things that they see before their eyes in a way that maybe, you know, we didn't. And that's encouraging. Which is sad, though, isn't it? Sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it uh, we it's say the same thing. Sad. It's sad that you have to do that now. I mean, there was, you know, I, I, once upon a time, and I'm not going to tell you how old I am, and I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but once <laughs> upon a time for both of us, we could just see something on TV or in the movies, not in the movies, because that's fake, obviously, but on TV in the news and go, that's real. And now we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, exactly. And it's interesting. I've been asked this question before and you, you get a lot of challenges because people see what I do as kind of poking holes, which, which I suppose it is. I do enjoy technology as well. And I think there's a lot of good coming out of it. But, you know, people will say, well, what's the difference between that and people having the wits scared out of them when they saw Jaws for the first time or something? You know what I mean? Like you, people have always been able to suspend disbelief. And I think it's, it's a contextual thing as well. I, I don't know if I'm going to see an email that's generated in the style that, you know, a relative or my husband might write to me 
and, and is completely convincing and yet is something that, you know, requests private information or, you know, something Never that represents a fraud. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, I'm probably giving ideas to people. <laughs> no, you've got to think these things through. And, um, and I think in, in context where we expect to be able to trust things, absolutely, like not at this cinema and not when we're watching, you know, something on Netflix, in other contexts that are very much up close and personal, we're going to have to have that, um, that, that kind of check on ourselves so that we, we make sure that these things aren't, you know, are exactly as they, you know, sorry, they aren't exactly as they seem. One more thing, just before I let you go, because we're short on time. Uh, let's end on a happy note with potentially with what this could do. Does this theoretically mean, because it seems as though not only has this absorbed all of the knowledge on the internet, as you point out, basically, and it seems that it can create some sort of on-the-fly algorithm to mimic certain styles or whatever, as you said, does this mean that theoretically we could have John Grisham books, new ones being produced ad infinitum until the end of time, or that Shakespeare could be writing again or whatever? Could we suddenly have all these new things that could be very exciting? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think maybe it does. And, you know, it would be really interesting as people kind of bed in and start to kind of, you know, stretch the legs of this system, so to speak. I think we're going to see more of that. There are already apps that people have built where you can have a conversation with Shakespeare and it's quite plausible, apparently, the back and forth. Um, But I think we are going to see attempts to do this. And then I guess it comes down to whether you believe a Shakespeare written in 2021, for example, is, you know, is akin to a Shakespeare written in um, 1600 and whatever. Uh, Mm. And uh, I guess that's, that's a subjective thing. And I think there's going to be lots of debates around, you know, what constitutes true art versus, you know, what we, some might think of as kind of mangled regurgitations of things that have gone before. And, and, and you know, and, and whether there is actually something useful and healthy about going around the loop time and time again and regurgitating old stuff. And we should actually be encouraging people to be newly creative. But yeah. Um, yeah. it will be exciting to watch those debates play out. I don't know if I want to read a Shakespeare play about a Danish prince named Drake. I'm not sure yet if that's... Uh, <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> well, maybe, who knows, maybe. And, and also, I mean, look, music lyrics. I mean, the, 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 there could be lyrics from now until the dawn of time with this thing. It is, um, it's fascinating. There are parts about it that make it really, uh, really a little, but it's, it is interesting stuff. Um, Fiona McAvoy, you can read about her and find her stuff on youthedata.com. She's the uh, founder of that, youthedata.com. Fiona, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No, that's been great. It is, um, you can also, by the way, if you are intrigued by this and want to see what a computer can now do, um, you can look up, uh, just make a note of this headline and the headline is this, a robot, write a a robot wrote this entire article. Are you scared yet human? That's the, that's the headline on it. It's in the guardian and you can read it and you can decide whether you are impressed or freaked out by the fact that a non-human wrote what really reads like a very talented writer wrote it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode and also be sure you rate us and review us Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.